night, Monday through Friday from 9 until 10 with a little bit of real in-time radio. We're, we're live, in other words, and uh, we try to bring you programs that uh, are educational and, and entertaining. And when our guest tonight comes and he's been visiting us, I was just calculating in my mind just before we came on the air, I'm guessing at least 12 years, uh, he, he's both of those things. He's uh, entertaining and uh, educational. And his name is William Kimmler. He's a professor of history at NC State University and a historian of science. And one of the things I think that it, I thought it was a nice thing is I think he majored in biology or something like that in the beginning. William, are you there? That's right. Yes. I started off as a scientist. You know, it was the thing to do and uh, seemed so fascinating. And then somewhere along the way, I realized that, you know, the people in the history were just as fascinating. And so I combined the two. Um, and lucky enough to get a job at State where they believed the same thing, that yeah. you know, right. a valuable a... historical approach to looking at science. And you, you walk the walk, and, and therefore I think you have a, a better opportunity, uh, perhaps, to talk the talk. And one of the things I've never done for you, and I don't mean to, to short you in any way, because a lot of work, I, I was in the academic business for a time, and I know there's a lot of work that goes into acquiring degrees, and then once you're, you're a member of a faculty, you have to spend a lot of time uh, get, getting along and, and rising. You're an associate professor now, which means you're just a little bit away from being a, what they call a full. I still remember the lingo, and uh, but uh, you also have a couple of extra things that, that uh, you do. Uh, I'm trying to get your pedigree out for you. Yes, so, yes I, I also um, have a particular interest in tonight's topic because I help run a program uh, for many years now called the Thomas Jefferson Scholars. and. Their students, they take a degree in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. They take a simultaneously earn a whole full degree in the College of Humanities at the same time. And, you know, it's this linkage of science and society which drew me in, and that's actually what we're going to talk about some tonight, the man Alexander von Humboldt who embodied that in the 19th century. Well, you know, you've just used the name, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't decide whether I would use this as an opening or not because I want you to do most of the talking tonight. But... In, in exploring uh, some background, preparing to, to be on the air with you tonight, I, I, almost every author opens uh, the what their account of Frederick von Humboldt's activities with saying that nobody knows who he is, and I indeed was one of those people. I knew about the Humboldt Current, which flows along the coast, the western coast of South America, and I believe flows north. And it's yeah. remarkable, you know, you know, one of those, one of the authors we'll talk about a little later on, she points out that there are Humboldt towns and counties and rivers and geographical features all over North America, all over South America, all over Mexico. I mean, the guy was perhaps one of the most famous people of the 19th century. And it's, the English-speaking world seems to have forgotten about him, except, you know, in little in little, you know, patches here and there, there'd be some memory. Maybe if you lived in Humboldt County, you'd learn in school who he was. Well, there is uh, a Humboldt in Nevada. They were going to... Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of... All over it, you know, so he's... But nicely, he's been revived because he had some... He's the beginning of some very modern ways of thinking. Um, you know, in Germany, they remembered him more, partly because he and his brother are associated with the name of the great Berlin University, Humboldt University. And so there's a, you know... There's a local culture that knows him more. 
our European friends are a little amused that we're rediscovering him. Um, most of us as scholars are fairly thrilled for him to be talked about again, um, because he's the beginning of some modern notions uh, about the, the globe. Well, I'm sure one connection for you, and one thing that uh, if, if, if someone said, well, what did he ever do? Uh, yeah. uh, you can flash one name on him, on, on him and then... Yeah, my, yeah, my sort of one-liner would be, he's one of the first people to really realize how comparisons across the whole, the whole globe, that we have to tie all these regions together in comparison. When we do... We find out some big ways about how the world works. He started as a miner, mining geologist, um, and recognizing that you know the same strata, the same deposits are found in different places, and they're caused by similar laws, similar events. You know, we get a we get the global sciences. I think that's the reason people today are looking at him again, because we're looking at global climate, global agricultural changes, global ecosystems. Um, well, about the time I was in, in, in an undergraduate, and I'm just a little older than you, I think, <laughs> a word popped up. I, it probably was around all along, but the word ecology started appearing. And it, 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 the stories that were told were about people who uh, sprayed for one thing and killed all the bugs, and then, then yeah. the, the, the connection it's true that, You know, that 1960s period, you know, with Rachel Carson's Silent right. Spring in the early 60s, but, you know, that the 1950s and 60s is really the time when that word ecology really started getting beyond a narrow group of plant and animal people in universities and, you know, wildlife managers. And it started getting out into the whole public. And the, it, the science itself got more organized around 1900. But here's the nice part, Press, is the word, it was a German word, coined in the 1860s by a man named Heckel, who was directly influenced by thinking about landscapes and how the plants and animals fit them from the work of Humboldt. So, you know, this is a line that goes, our modern awareness goes right back to 1805 when uh, he's this German mining engineer is traveling in Venezuela, Colombia, um, Ecuador. And he has a, a, an interesting small connection when, when he... It, it, finished with his travels in South America, he decided to take a side trip to Washington and ended up in Philadelphia and wrote the president, who was Thomas Jefferson, a letter and said, I'd like to come by and see you sometime, Tom. Yeah, they had a, had a great dinner together, evidently. <laughs> Two broad-ranging scholars, um, both interested in freedom and, you know, rights, but also fascinated by the natural world. You know, Jefferson was quite the naturalist. He collected fossils to try to prove to the Europeans that America was not a degenerate place. You know, that we had magnificent natural features and great animals. Um, I suppose we ought to tell people a little bit of story of who Humboldt was. Um, he was a rich young man in Germany, uh, fated to be a government bureaucrat to an aristocratic family. He realized he would inherit wealth, and he just basically told dear mama, I'm not going to go into government service. I want to go explore. And he had the money to do it. Um, his first explorations were after graduating, and he, he had a good education in mining, which was some of our first engineering colleges in the European-American world started off as mining institutes. They were the first to use you know, the new physics and chemistry that was arising around 1800. Um, and he had that great education. He did a walking tour across part of Europe, and he realized that 
seeing all these different places and comparing them gave him new ideas. He was also, uh, you know, picked up, had mentors. Some of the greatest writers and philosophers in Germany at the time were interested in him. He was bright and articulate, you know, conversationalist, a fascinating young man. And he got this idea that he wanted to explore South America. And off he goes for a, about a six-year expedition on foot, for the most part, uh, through Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador. Um, took along a botanist um, to help him with the plants, and they explored. Um, ending up going north through Mexico, um, up to see Jefferson back home. And once he got home, he realized Berlin was too stuffy for his and your worldliness now. And he came to himself in Paris, where for the next 40 years, he was one of the leading intellectuals where everybody had to meet him, had to come have conversation. You know, their, their uh, nightlife very often amongst you know people was to you know, go to lectures, you know, and go to a soiree, you know, have a conversation. Salon. Yeah, the salon life. And he, he dominated there because he was a great um, raconteur and he was a great writer. Um, for those folks who've watched, you know, the recent um, TV series, Cosmos, you know, uh, where um, Neil deGrasse Tyson ties together science and, you know, history sorts of things, well, that was the the works that made Humboldt famous. First, he wrote a great travel narrative, start helping start that whole fad for travel and exploration books. And then he had a long magazine series called Cosmos, um, where he wrote about nature and all you know all these, but about art and about landscape, uh, about you know all 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 parts of the world, I guess you might say. Um, so he was a, a figure that influenced many, many, many people into taking a look at nature. Uh, it influenced painters, some of the great American landscape painters, followed his ideas of how to use a landscape to try to show us the, the nature of a place, you know, it's both its difference and its similarity to places we know. Um, but it, it's hard to find a place where he doesn't have an effect, um, you know, in, in thinking about a, a larger world than most people lived in in 1800. You know, there's been a, several centuries now of our kind of globalizing. You know, the great opening of the oceans did one thing of tying countries together. You know, and Humboldt is a part of that. I suppose we're still doing that with now our global satellites. You can use Google Earth to see any part of the world you want. Um, Humboldt seems to me to fit into that tradition of trying to knit everything together. And he, unless I'm mistaken, he appeared at a time. I remember hearing a lecture by professor of French, in fact, who taught at NC State one time, about what the French people thought America was like, and it was kind of like what we might have thought about the moon, you know, when we thought it yeah. was made out of Swiss cheese or something. Some strange, you know, monstrous place full of oddities and right. you know, remote, and yeah, then it becomes uh, much more a part of the world after these kinds of travels and descriptions. So he has an influence on great Americans in the conservation you know, nature movement, like um, Henry David Thoreau and John Muir. You know, the, that whole that whole ecological environmental movement stems from him in part. A lot of the interest in oceanography. You mentioned the Humboldt Current off of um, California and South America. I mean, that's you know, it's it's appropriate. It's named for him because he helped us sort of realize that oceanography and air currents and climates and weather systems are global. Um, it's a interesting bunch of connections. 
he's a bit of a scattershot guy. I mean, he's, he dabbles in everything and not deeply in much except for one really big idea he had, which I think anybody in North Carolina would recognize if they've been out to Mount Mitchell. You know, as you're driving to the mountains, you can see those bands. You know, you drive up the hill, you suddenly realize you're in spruce trees and there's no more oak trees. You know, you've reached some elevation where the vegetation changes. Into can we, can we stop for a moment? Because I think this is a good place to begin after we take a break. Yeah. What we're talking about is plant geography, I think. Yeah, yeah. That, and that's his great contribution to recognize these sort of zones, which, you know, become kind of common sense for us now. Well, I remember having a, a gentleman on who does nature programs for public television in North Carolina, and he, you know, talked about the in the far northwestern corner up around Boone and there, there are a lot of plants uh, that at certain elevations that grow. You could be in Canada, for instance. Yeah. Uh, if you just went by the plant. But that's a good place to explore and to start exploring after we take a break. That's Dr. Okay. William Kimmler, professor of history and history of science at North Carolina State University, is our guest. And we're talking about a guy that I'm afraid I maybe had heard of, but that's about it, and that a lot of pe other people haven't. But uh, he has a connection and a, and a bit of influence on a lot of people, including uh, a guy named Charles Darwin, who said that he... When he read his books, uh, he decided that maybe he'd take a trip to South America, too. We'll find out all about that when we come back. State University, and he has visited us for, I think, at least the last 12 or 13 years to talk about Charles Darwin on the anniversary of Darwin's birthday, which is February, I believe, February the 9th. No, February the 12th. He was February the 12th, 1809, the same day Abraham Lincoln was born. And in talking about Darwin, another name has come up, and it was a name that I had encountered in reading, and that is a, a German scientist, Alexander von Humboldt, who I really didn't know about, and I was embarrassed. But, but I happened to have at hand somebody we could invite to tell us about that person, and so he is here. And Dr. Kimmer was about to talk about plant geography, I think, is Yes. Uh, you know, it's it's the most noted thing, you know, for his scientific accomplishments. And as we were saying before, I mean, he has a big cultural impact in enthusing people about the tropics, you know, and, and for travel, exploration. We get a lot of scientists like young Darwin who go exploring and, you know, end up discovering things. I mean, he was influential on the environmental movement today. He's this influence on kind of the global sciences, climate and weather, and geology. But that first great discovery was because he was interested in mapping as a way to see everything, you know, so in his travels. And, of course, they traveled by foot and you know, on the horse. You see the landscape slowly. He took an enormous amount of equipment with him. Remember, he was rich, funding his own little expedition. He had a mule train full of scientific instruments. My favorite was his cyanometer, his blue measurer. Um, where he could hold up, you know, like if you've ever done like your swimming pool for the chlorine, you know, you could hold up the color against the sky and then write down precisely what color blue it was, which partly tells you like the humidity of the air, you know, the dry, you know, the dryness, you know, how blue the sky is. We know this in North Carolina. Well, in doing all this measuring, he was also his his companion, um, the botanist, was collecting the plants and they were identifying them, and they noticed as they went up the mountain, the vegetation changed. And you, know, you could be on the equator in Ecuador and be an alpine tundra. You just had to go higher than you do in Switzerland. 
And he worked out this law that for every three, you know, thousand feet you go up in altitude, it's like going three degrees north in latitude. Um, and so you can make this equivalence. And he realized this sort of tied together big zones. And we see it as those kinds of zonations. You go to up the mountains, and you notice you get out of the pines into the you know the the hard the hardwoods, and then you get into the spruce trees, and eventually you get up on the balds. Um, you know, and that kind of pattern. He gave us those lines. We're all used to seeing those lines of equal value, like on a weather map, you know, or a topo map. Um, so he was a big innovator in this kind of mapping and seeing the world, um, which is what got the scientists excited because he, you know, he went to unknown places and he romanticized them, but he also found the laws of nature that sort of lie under them. Um, there's a great line of his. I actually went and pulled up a quote for tonight because um, it's so interesting what he says. You know, he says, it's basically what we want to know, the noblest result we can see. He called it the chain of connections, where all natural forces are linked together and made mutually dependent upon each other. You know, and that kind of in mutual interdependence of lots of causes is how you can figure out a bigger world. Right? You, can, you need that to figure out climates or you know, weather systems or something like that. Um, well, I got, if, if I may say, uh, really kind of excited when it, I was reading a description of his uh, being on Mount, I hope I say it right again, Ter Ter help me with this. Oh, yes, Mount Chimborazo. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's up there and he's, he's, one of the things is supposed to be the tallest mountain in the world, I think it is at that time, and he and the other guy, the French guy that went with him, were crawling up the mountain. Stopping everywhere, measuring the fumes coming out of the volcano, looking at the rocks and the plants, hoping to get to the peak. They never could quite get to the peak. They got high enough that, in fact, that's another reason he was a sensation when he got home to Europe. At that time, that was the highest anyone had climbed a mountain. Um, you know, so this is before the Everest exploits of the 1900s. So you hear back in 1805... This is the man who has climbed the tallest mountain they know in the world. Um, you know, it's the heroism of the mountaineer and the conquest sort of thing. Um, he's a tough guy. He traveled up these tropical rivers, you know, in canoes and uncharted, unmapped, you know, for months on end, um, collecting with all the rigor there, you know, the mosquitoes and the, you know, alligators in the water and, you know, electric fish um, electrocuting their horses. I mean, just, it's it's a great romantic travel tale, too. Um, it's in a Penguin paperback now, so if people would like to read his own narrative, as he called it, my personal narrative of my journey, um, yeah, personal narrative of a journey to the equinoctial regions, uh, the equator. And so, you know, it's, it's nice because it's out in paperback, um, and you can read his wonderful prose about, you know, these adventures. Can we can we put a put a hold on this for a moment now because yeah. we need to check the news and find out what's going on in in the larger world. But we'll come back to hear some more about Alexander von Humboldt from Dr. William Kimmler right after this on News Radio 680 WPTF. Friday from nine to ten with a little bit of live and in real-time radio. We're talking about famous scientists, uh, explorer, etc. With Dr. with Dr. William 
Kimmler tonight, and we'll be back to talk about Alexander von Humboldt a little bit more in a moment. We do usually do our uh, our promo at this time, and uh, we'll tell you that tomorrow night will be a nostalgia night, and I haven't really quite decided what to do uh, about tomorrow night, so you, you can call in, and we'll have a kind of a reminiscence open phone program, uh, and I hope you'll join us for that. Friday night will be Friday night trivia night, and uh, next week uh, we have a number of interesting uh, hope shows. Uh, one of the things, uh, Stephen, my brother, is going to be able to talk about the Academy Awards, uh, I believe, on Tuesday night. Uh, they announced the nominations will be announced on Monday, and then uh, we'll talk about the awards, which will be given away at the end of April. But tonight we're talking about, well, uh, science, culture, uh, and, a, and a significant figure, but one that... Uh, uh, although he made contributions, it's not often remembered, and we're working on doing our little bit to remedy that with Dr. William Kimmer of NC State. Doctor, Dr. Kimmer, are you there? Yes, I am. I'm sorry it took so long to, to walk back up to, to where you are standing there. but uh, Well, I'm on top of Mount Chimborazo gazing across. You know, um, folks who uh, know Richmond might, you know, Virginia might know that the big hill on the east side of the city is called Chimborazo. Um, because, you know, it's the highest point there in the city, and the folks thought they'd make a little comparison to the Andes Mountains. You know what was there during war, the Civil War, don't you? Yeah, the Civil War Hospital the, for the... The, um, the big... Yeah. There's a great National Park Museum, a house museum there, with, of uh, a medical museum of Civil War medicine. Right. I did a... When I was pretending to be a historian, uh, I did a program for a group one time on the medical history of the Confederacy, and, I, of course, I had to talk about... Chimborazo a lot. And, yeah, uh, it, it, yeah, it's a fascinating site. Um, you know, one of these, you know, really, you know, one of our small gems of a park. You know, it's the size of a house and the lawn around it. But it's a, they've got a good exhibit and a good curator there. Um, you know, it's, you know, historians always think about, um, you know, memory and what's who we remember and who we don't. And here's this figure that we think should be much more famous. You know, my own theory about why we sort of forgot him was that. All the fields he started thinking about, you know, these kinds of connections, you know, the geological comparisons, big climate comparisons, the, you know, what we might call the ecological, you know, the ecosystems of the world. I mean, they all got more technical after him. Um, you know, he's like the founding figure that everybody left behind, and you no longer need that founder. And maybe he just worked in so many areas, he doesn't get his name on just one thing, you know, not like a, a Newton or a, a Darwin or an Einstein, you know, you remember them for that one big idea. This was a man who had many, 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 many ideas, um, and maybe that sort of scattered his influence. You know, that's why they tell, I know it was long ago when I was given the advice as a budding PhD candidate to find yourself a hole somewhere and just dig it deeper. Right? Yeah, that's, you know, the, the two kinds of academics, you know, those who know a lot about it, you know, a little bit about a lot of things and those who burrow and burrow and burrow. Um, Humboldt was the broad thinker wanting to connect everything, so he ends up touching a lot of people. I mean, he has a big influence on landscape painting as well as being a scientist, you know, mostly for realistic, you know, depictions. But as a way to, for him, it was a way to grasp nature, you know, to try to, to, try to hold it in your mind, you know, use a painting to kind of concentrate it on all the things that make some place distinctive or... You know, just like his maps would try to tie things together. It's an interesting notion as we face the complexity of the world. 
you know, what you took. Um, and I think that's the nature of the book that you had mentioned when you invited me on. Um, it was a you know a big prize winner a couple of years ago, Andrea Wolf W U L F as Wolf, but she wrote this book called The Invention of Nature, where she traces his life, but then also his influence in the way we've been talking about tonight. Um, you know, it's a it's an eye opener to see you know how how many directions someone's life and work can go. She uh, had done some work, I think, on, on gardens, for instance. Yes, wrote a wonderful book, The Founding Gardeners. It's about, um, you know, all of our, you know, it's about the early presidents and how they designed, you know, Washington, D.C. and the White House grounds and, you know, their interest in their their estates, um, you know, Madison, Jefferson, Washington. Um, it's a, yeah, that's a really good book, too. Um, she's, a, she's a great writer, very engaging writer, so it's an enjoyable book. Um, there's a smaller biography of of uh, Humboldt, which is a little bit more about his personal life. Uses a lot of his letters to find out about his, you know, more of his you know, relations with other people. And that book is called A Longing for Wide and Unknown Things. Uh, a marvelous title, isn't it, for to sort of try to capture someone's personality in a line. Um, well, you know, one of the things that struck me, and you you may. This may be right under the the cover of what you're talking about now is is there's there's science uh, and you know the kind of science that was produced when the Enlightenment was the possibility you know when when we moved away from uh, getting our knowledge from from religion but rather from experiment. But yes, he was at the same time a very romantic figure and had that sense of uh, of. Uh, Seeing it in, in in as a romantic person would rather than as a cold, even though he took took down you know all that you know I mentioned earlier that he was crawling across the top of the mountain writing down data everywhere and, and, and then he's turning around and writing a paragraph about the feeling of the clouds and the right, majestic exactly. view of the hills. I think that's another reason why people are re fascinated by him today is that you know they want the science of the earth not to just be dry numbers, but to capture something about our, our feeling for it, you know, our immersion in nature. And Humboldt is a great, I mean, he was an Enlightenment scientist. He wanted to bring precision and numbers and laws and causes, you know, and rejecting folk tales, a lot of it is, you know, because the miners had ideas about how the gold grew in the body of the earth. And, he, you know, he wanted to get rid of all that old magic kind of stuff. But he's also, as you said, a great man of feeling and emotion. He wanted, he wanted to express how nature comes into us, you know, how we, how we experience it. And apparently, he, wherever he was, he could look out the window and see something that was worth seeing. He, uh, one of the things I read was his commentary on observing uh, the place that they put him up in Quito, I think, uh, the slave market below, and how he he really was. First-class abolitionist type person, but also at the same time, the fact that where Quito is is sitting uh, on top of something that that it would be another hundred or hundred fifty years before the scientists really felt good about it, and that is all that bubbling uh, hot uh, uh, stuff under under the earth. It's going to well, there are lots of volcanoes there. Is what I guess I'm trying to say. Yeah. So his. yeah, this, this combination of the the one thing that he well besides not maybe settling in on one thing and you know having the just sort of confirming some ideas. I mean he did uh, he did good scientific work in this plant geography, but 
you know, the one thing he didn't quite see was how the history of the Earth ties this all together. You know, that a lot of these plants and animals moved around. And now, of course, we know that the very plates of the Earth move around. You know, the continents have moved around. Well, no way he could have known all of that. But that's the one thing that makes him maybe more of the older world and a little less of our modern world. He doesn't have quite the same amount of historical dynamics that we look at. We're so used to everything in the world changing. We're not surprised that the Earth itself changes. Um, you know, his work was before we discovered the glacial ice ages. Um, you know, that wasn't known until the 1840s, and by then he's already a fairly elderly scientist. It's, it's those people, though, I believe, from his, his geological studies, and wasn't the man who, wasn't his name Tom Smith or John Smith or something, the man the, who developed the... the, the Oh yes, Smith's map. It comes out just after Humboldt's mapping. You know, they're of a they're of that same generation of mining engineers who are figuring out new techniques for making maps. Yeah, right, William well, Smith's map of England was this sensation. You know, it's this. Well, he big, was, a, I believe, a road builder, and every time they started digging down, he noticed all the different you know yeah. levels. You know, like a cake or something. And, yeah, and they started making those colored maps, like we still get from the state geological agency. Right. You know, that show you all the types of maps in different places and the profiles. Very important for roads and canals and for agriculture, you know, soil types. And that's what Humboldt was trying to do. He wanted to be able to look at the vegetation and the elevation and the soil type of a place and tell you, you know, how you could transform it in agriculture, turn this jungle into a cornfield or something. If it um, would be interesting to anyone, one of the docu- I watched a documentary today uh, on, on Humboldt and uh, attached to it were some things about some nature artists who painted American scenes, and there's apparently a fairly curated collection in the Smithsonian. That is. Yes, there's a great website at the Smithsonian right now. They did an Andrew, it was, it was his 250th birthday last year, and so the Smithsonian and their marvelous curator, Ellen Harvey, um, have made an exhibit. It's online now, so if you just, if you just Google um, Humboldt and Smithsonian, it'll come up with... Uh, the, it's called Alexander von Humboldt and the United States. It has wonderful things about the artists um, who, li- they literally followed in his footsteps. They would get a copy of his book, travel to South America, and follow the paths he walked on to see what he saw. That's how influential he was. And then paint these tremendous landscape paintings. And, and there were some, uh, I don't know if he, I think there were things that maybe even he did, some, uh, some portraits of... Uh, sort of uh, views of, well, I can't just, yeah, I've lost the word now, but when you when you cut something in half so you can see the different levels of where the plants were located and so on. Yeah, and where, he had this they mapping idea that he was going to you know, draw this one giant map with like all the data on it so you could try to grasp it in your mind. So, you know, you get these cross-sections and elevational things and where all the plants are. Um, you know, it was a, that early 1800s in the period when, we were basically trying to figure out how to how to conceive this bigger interaction of the world. Um, you know, life had been pretty local before that for many, many people. Yeah, well, something that that uh, is in that connection that we touched on a little bit earlier, if, if I may again, uh, when he went to see Jefferson, Jefferson had just packed Lewis and Clark off to do something not unlike what he was doing, not maybe not as intricate, 
but to find out exactly what he had purchased and uh, what it looked yeah. like and uh, where the rivers were and what, what kind of and terrain. And a couple of guys west, be like Humboldt, right? <laughs> yeah, this guy in Germany's done this. Let's see what you guys can do. And, that kind of, yeah. and of course, Thoreau uh, is, you know, when we were young, when I was young and went to school, Thoreau was known basically for his politics, you know, uh, civil, civil resistance or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's much more known, I think, today in the interest in him has to do with his studies of nature and, and the kinds of things that uh, Humboldt would have appreciated. I think it's because, yes, for, you know, um, in a clearer, more American English, you know, beautifully written, but also that sort of direct to the point, though poetic and lucid, um, Thoreau really saw Humboldt's message, you know, this interconnectedness of everything, you know, the pull one strand and the whole web is affected um, you know, net, the network sort of idea. Um, you know, this is what our world is today. You know, we have a disease haunting us now that starts out in China and jumps around the world by global traffic. You know, we've got an Internet that, you know, great word, Internet, you know, ties all this together, you know, our communications networks. And, we have and if you cut down all the trees, don't be surprised if the hillside washes away. Can we stop for a yes. second? We need to take a break. Dr. William Kimmler is our guest tonight. We're talking about uh, Alexander von Humboldt and uh, the, the study of uh, the studies he made of uh, holistic nature. One one author's book calls him the inventor of nature, and he of course had a holistic view, which is what we're trying to build on now. I keep saying we, Dr. Dr. Kilmer is the brain to this outfit. I'm the radio guy, and I'm the one who tells you we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 52 in WPTF. We've got about four more minutes to talk to Dr. William Kimmer, and, and since he and I are in different places tonight, that's an obvious cue to him. One of the things you don't get when, as we most of the times when we've done programs together, we've been in the same room and, and had good eye contact and got the, the BS a little bit along the way. We, and I, I miss <laughs> don't that. give away our secrets now. Yeah, I miss, <laughs> miss that, Dr. Kimmer. One of the things that, that I want to he died, uh, Humboldt did, Von Humboldt, uh, uh, in 1859, I think about three or four months or after or before. Yeah, just uh, at that transition, right? You know, just just a few months before Darwin publishes On the Origin of Species, deeply influenced by the travels. So Darwin went and made his own South American travels and deeply influenced in trying to see the world as interconnected. Darwin added the historical side, seeing how the plants and animals had moved around and changed in place, giving us evolution. You know, it's also the you know the fifties. That's when Thoreau comes to prominence. You know, as you mentioned, as a famous abolitionist, and then he uh, was <coughs> deeply influenced by Darwin. Um, you know, that whole group of the uh, the New England intellectuals, you know, grabbed this idea and helped spread it. Um, you know that. Humboldt died just before the sort of great transition where a lot of this came to fruition. Um, uh, the, and uh, it, it, it kind of throws into a kind of starkness that uh, it's a, a wonderful word. I, I like it anyway. The word he is regarded by some of the authors I read as the last great polymath, and that is a man who yeah. needs and you knew just about everything. However, well, the flip then, side of that dabbling that I was talking yeah. about is that he knew an extra, he didn't know an extraordinary amount. I mean, he, he covered so many subjects. 
um, and he tried to embrace it all. You know that that notion of, of trying to use it all to see that it is all connected. Um, now we need multidisciplinary teams of scholars to do this, right? So we can, you know, take our our specialized stuff and get together with a team of people. He was a one man team. So. Well, uh, I feel better now because I was kind of embarrassed. Uh, uh, one of the things that I, I I've spent some time working in in, a, in my PhD program, which I'm one of those, as you know, Doctor. I'm one of those, what is called an ABD, an all-but-dissertation thing. But it meant you had to do a lot of reading, and I, I've done a fair amount of reading, and so I get disappointed in my life now at this age, not that I don't know everything, because I certainly don't. I'm kind of like the guy we were talking about. I'm a mile wide and an inch deep. But, but I do sometimes get a little bothered when some really great guy shows up and I've never heard of him before. You know? Yeah. On the other hand, you know, what you've done with your radio show is sort of Humboldtian. That's a popular adjective these days. Yeah. Look for the things that are sort of broad like this. Um, because you've you've put lots of ideas together. You know, all your different kinds of guests. And if your listeners listen consistently, they hear bits and pieces. And, you know, eventually you, you know, you'll find threads that tie them together. Um, we've done that before in talking about, you know, Darwin's influence in America on those abolitionists or others, um, you know, humble to Well, you, you, let me say this, as we come to the close, that you're very, very nice to say that. And one of the things when you, for instance, you've been, I guess, at least once a year for about 12 or 13 years around Darwin's birthday, because that's one of your specialties. And that's, well, I just think Darwin is a very important influence in, in, in the history of the last 150, 200 years. But every year by reviewing or preparing for a program, I've found that I've learned just a little bit more. And uh, sooner or later, I'm going to know all about the French Revolution. When, uh, <laughs> yeah. your, your colleague, uh, I can't think of his name right now, who is, teaches the French Revolution for your department. Oh, uh, Stephen Vincent. Stephen Vincent. Yeah, I, I, just to be prepared to talk with him each year, I have to go back and, and read a little bit more and prepare a little bit more. But sooner or later, I'm making your world bigger. Now you've got to keep reading about Humboldt. There's more and more work coming out, so uh, well, you can follow these lines. Well, that that will be one more name that that I have to look in the index. You know, of, uh, any book I pick up, I look in the index for certain names just to see if they're there. And, and sometimes it's totally incongruous because it's a different chronological period or whatever. William, thank you for being with us tonight. I'll talk to you in a minute off the air, but thank All you right. for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. William Keller, professor of history at NC State, and we've been talking about Alexander von Humboldt. I hope somebody will be, feel the desire to go to the library or to the bookstore and read some more about him. <laughs>